It has often been said that of all the central truths of the Christian faith, the most self-evident is the defection and disobedience of humanity, often called the fall of humanity, though that is not a biblical term as such. A year last March, Channel 4 decided to produce a Big Brother-type reality show called Eden, where 23 young people were placed with minimal support on a remote peninsula in the Scottish Highlands, and they were filmed with something like 47 strategically placed cameras. Things got so bad so quickly... Bullying, drunkenness, selfishness, near starvation, non-cooperation, that most of the women left within a few weeks and after only four episodes they pulled the show. Sin is indeed a self-evident truth. This account, Genesis chapter 3, of how sin came into God's creation, told here with great skill and subtlety, is memorable, it is vivid. If it wasn't so tragic, it would be comical. It raises, of course, many questions, historical and theological. But what it does do, for sure, is that it speaks across the millennia with a timeless power and eloquence and conviction. Suddenly, in this idyllic park called Eden, a land of innocence and blessing and beauty, a talking snake raises its head. Now the snake was more crafty, verse 1, more shrewd than all the wild animals. And here from within the created order, without any explanation of its origin, comes a voice that represents evil. Traditionally understood as the voice of the devil, indeed the book of Revelation speaks of the devil as that ancient serpent But we're not explicitly told that here. What we are told is that this anti-God, seductive voice comes wearing a very clever mask. Here is the tempter, hidden in the ordinariness and the everydayness of a creature in the garden. The serpent begins by asking a seemingly innocent question. Has God really said? And of course it's in that word really that lies the first small seed of mistrust in the creator. Smuggled in is the beginning of an idea that perhaps God's words are open to our judgment. 
And the first suggestion that God might actually be meaner than we think. Did God really say you must eat from any tree in the garden? And so the woman responds and she corrects the snake. But notice she doesn't correct the snake accurately. She omits something and she adds something. Whereas the Lord God had said you may freely eat from every tree in the garden, bar one of course, she admits that word every. And she adds that you may not even touch this tree in the middle. What is perhaps more significant is that the snake calls God simply God. This distant God, rather than as we've seen in chapters 2 and 3, one of the striking characteristics is that the God is called the Lord God, the loving, caring, covenant partner of humanity, the name that characterizes these two chapters. And what is significant is that Eve now adopts this rather cold language. He, he, she calls him God. And so sensing success, the snake is emboldened. He now openly questions God's authority. Verse 4, you will not certainly die. And he openly questions God's motivation. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here was a unique tree that we thought about two weeks ago at the very centre of this parkland, meant to remind all creation that God and God alone is the source and the sovereign over all things, that his wisdom and his knowledge is unique, it is unrivaled and he is to be completely trusted and depended upon. And out of love and out of love alone, God banned any eating from this tree because God knew that for creatures to aspire to be like him would in fact be to lose their whole joy and dignity in their dependence upon him. But here, the snake is subtly suggesting that God's motivation is not love, but fear of rivalry. The woman by now is rapidly losing her moral balance and bearing. She stands pensive before this tree, she saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. And so to the climax of the story. And with remarkable brevity, the fatal steps are described in a series of staccato clauses. She saw, she took, she ate, she gave, he ate. Their eyes were opened. As one commentator says, so simple an act, so hard an undoing. The woman listens to the snake instead of listening to God. The man listens to his wife instead of listening to God. 
Both of them disobey, ignoring what God had expressly commanded. Both of them, it seems, had forgotten the sheer goodness and freedom that had been entrusted to them, both in the name of instant gratification, had rebelled. And so enters sin into the human condition. And what follows is one of the saddest and most forlorn scenes in the whole of Scripture. Adam and Eve do indeed have their eyes opened, as the snake had predicted. But instead of seeing a noble panorama of the world from God's perspective, it all becomes a grotesque anticlimax. All they see is their own nakedness, and all they feel is their own shame and guilt. And so in fear, they hide from God. And so the Lord God has to call out to man, where are you? And that's the question I want us to think about for a few moments before communion. Where are you? And the simple answer from this chapter is that we are in the midst of tragedy. This morning we are reading humanity's great primal tragedy. This is not just a fascinating depiction of sin's origin in humanity where we can stand back and have the leisure of debating such things as original sin and how that sin is transferred. But what we have here is a sober reminder that we as humans are suffering a paradise lost. And we are told and encouraged to look at what has been lost. So first and centrally, what has been lost by sin is fellowship with God. The whole chapter shouts out one word, and that one word is estrangement. Man and woman were made to worship and enjoy God, symbolized in this startling depiction of God Almighty walking leisurely through the garden in the cool, in the breeze of the day, just as the Queen wanders through Windsor Gardens with her friends, chatting about her favorite flower, which according to Gardner's question time is the primrose. It's a picture that speaks of warmth and intimacy, of pleasure and privilege. And it has all gone. I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. Instead of the trust of innocence is now the fear of guilt. The many trees that God had created for man to look at and enjoy, are now his hiding place to prevent God from seeing him. What what irony. 
And with that basic alienation comes, of course, other alienations. Alienation from each other. Alienation from the world around us. Indeed, estrangement from ourselves. There is no part of our existence that is now not tainted by sin. During the 1980s and the 1990s, as a family, we would regularly go on holiday from Newcastle, where we lived, to the Isle of Colonsay. And we loved and love the Isle of Colonsay. And when we first went in the 1980s, we found it one of the most relaxing, safe, laid-back places you could ever visit. It was idyllic. No one locked their doors. Everybody left their car keys in the ignition and just abandoned their cars where they wanted. Bikes were leaned just wherever people wanted to lean their bikes. Deliveries were left on the doorstep and people left them there all day. Everyone seemed to trust one another. But one year, things changed. Almost as soon as we drove off the ferry, we sensed something was different on the Isle of Colonsay. Everyone was a little bit tenser, certainly more security conscious. And we soon discovered from the post office, where everybody hears all the news, that for the first time in living memory, there had been a major crime on the Isle of Colonsay. In fact, the post office had been burgled and about £2,000 had been taken. And somehow, that one act affected the atmosphere and the relationships and the culture and the trust of the whole island. And for me, it is a picture of Genesis chapter 3. Creation was all about God's blessing. Three times in Genesis 1, we are told that God blessed. He blessed the sea creatures and the bird. He blessed humankind, made him his image. He blessed the seventh day. But now in the sharpest of contrasts, if you look at the last half of this chapter, almost in poetic language, is the curse. Man and woman are, no, are, are not directly cursed. Note, the snake is in verse 14. But the very bringing of new life to birth was made painful for the woman. Work became a burden for the man. Relationships were fractured. Tension came. Notice, as Steve pointed out last week at the end of verse 16, that the joyful equality and complementarity of the sexes was lost. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. As one writer puts it, to love and to cherish the words that Nosheen and Lewis used yesterday become to desire and to dominate. And with that alienation comes bondage, trapped by their sin and shame. And with that bondage comes death. In one sense, of course, the serpent was right. You shall not certainly die. 
And Adam lived to enjoy his 930th birthday. Just imagine it. Ten cards from the Queen every century. Nine cards from the Queen. But the serpent was also very wrong. Because Adam did die the moment he ate of that fruit. He was cut off from the life of God. Excluded from the garden. The symbol, as we have said, of God's presence. Adam, where are you? No longer in a parkland of joy, but in a prison of shame. Hiding in fear, imprisoned by guilt. And as we read this story this morning and as we come in a few minutes to communion... We are not just looking through a window into our human moral history. We are looking into a mirror. For as we read this chapter, we see ourselves naked, exposed, before an all-seeing God. Without Jesus Christ, we too are hiding, though we may not think so. We are rebellious and we are disobedient. We too have shame and pride and are afraid. As Steve said movingly last week regarding human sexuality, all of us, whatever our marital state or our orientation, are broken people. And one of the most striking features of this story is the way, of course, Adam and Eve play the blame game. Look again at what they say in verse 12 and 13 when confronted by the Lord God. The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it, almost implying that it was God's fault for giving him the woman. And then the woman said, the snake deceived me and I ate it. And we all, if we are honest, have this ability, this remarkable ability to excuse ourselves. Here is the mirror of what we are like. All of us, says the Apostle Paul, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But as we come now to communion... There is another way of hearing this question. Adam, where are you? For sure here it is a word of judgment. But this question heard in the light of the whole canon of scripture is a word of hope and a remarkable word of love. It is the question... of the waiting father to the prodigal son. Where are you, says the grieving father, because I want you home. It is the question of a grieving Hosea, longing for his wayward wife to become faithful. Where are you? 
for I want you back home. It is the question of a loving God asking a faithless Israel over and over again through the prophets, where are you? In exile? In idolatry? With your ears covered? I want you back. I want you back. And it is the question that the risen Lord Jesus, who is here in our midst this morning, asks each one of you, and he asks me, where are you? For I want you back. I guess for me, the lasting impression of Genesis 3, as I've revisited this week, It's just a reminder of how extensive and how pervasive is the spoiling effect of sin within God's good creation. Sin is not a local, small matter. It is a cosmic tragedy. And how easily God could just have walked away from this little planet that he has made and dump it. On Tuesday, I had the privilege of speaking at the Christian Union on the theme of the hope of redemption. (laughs) Just a small theme. And as an illustration, I used this TV program that you may just have come across called Money for Nothing. And it has a very standard formula, if you know it. A gifted design artist, Sarah Moore, lurks around tips and dumps and skips and retrieves the most unlikely things that are being thrown out. And then she takes them to specialists, to cabinet makers and to blacksmiths and to electrical engineers and to brilliant artists who transform them, as you see here, into beautiful, bespoke and valuable pieces. And then she sells them on eBay or whatever. She makes a profit and she goes to some surprise guy who threw it in the tip and gives them the money uh, uh, that they've made as a profit. And as I said to the Christian Union on Tuesday, how easily God could have just backed off from this rebellious world and let it self-destruct, threw it in a cosmic skip. But the God we worship today is the God who in covenant love and promise chose to rescue and to redeem this broken, fallen world. And he did it as most of us are so familiar, but we need to hear it again, that he did it by becoming one of us. Jesus of Nazareth, who resisted the devil's temptations, who lived an obedient and perfect life, who battled in another garden called the Garden of Gethsemane and chose to let God have his will, who won, who became the second Adam, who became, in the great words of Martin Luther, whose life and ministry we celebrate here in St. Andrews this month, 
he became the proper man. And by his sacrificial death, the Son of God lovingly, voluntarily took upon himself our sin and the curse from that sin so that we could be forgiven. Our fellowship with God restored and the serpent exposed and disarmed. There is a tantalizing hint of this that we looked at with Bill Tooman in one of our seminars, where in verse 15, it says that the woman's offspring will crush your head. Where are you? Where are you? Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden. Jesus, here this morning, whose life and death And resurrection and ascension and ministry of the Spirit we celebrate now in communion. Longs to draw us back to himself from the far country.